With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Drivers! Start your engines! Hit the pace car! What for? Because you hit every other damn thing out there, I want you to be perfect! When I'm driving, I got a guy on the radio who talks to me. It's him. He talks to me. Hey, race fans. Welcome to the Hoobazoo Radio Network, and welcome to the Drafting the Circus program. My name is Frank Santoroski. I'll be your host for the next hour as we talk about everything racing. Joining me in the studio, I've got Louise Torres and Richard Uden. Fellas, how are we doing tonight? We're good, thank you. It's going pretty good. Going pretty good, yep. All right, so a pretty exciting show tonight. I've got two guests here that do very different things, but I find both of their work very fascinating. Uh, first off, we've got Dan Bly. Uh, Dan is a racing artist, and he's also a modeler. He does a uh, custom IndyCar die cast. You take uh, any car and make it into one of those ones that they just don't produce. So, Dan, welcome to the show. Thanks. Good to be here. I'm really honored. All right. And then our other guest, I've got uh, James Geisler in the house. James is a race historian and an archivist, but he prefers the term nerd, which, uh, which, hey, that's fine with me. Nerd's not a bad thing, but uh, James has compiled an amazing database of uh, open-wheel racing stats, uh, American open-wheel racing stats. So, James, I want to welcome you to the show as well. Yep, thank you very much. I'm glad to be here and talk with uh, fellow racing enthusiasts. All right, fantastic. Well, before we get to the interview segment, there was a bit of sad news in the racing world again. And that is the uh, we've lost another icon of the sport. That being Sir Frank Williams, uh, Frank Williams. Uh, he's a, uh, you know, formula one team owner. If you're not familiar with him, the, the man only has nine constructors championships, uh, seven drivers championships. And uh, he started out in the late sixties, tried to give formula one a go uh, with his own team. He ended up merging that team with uh, Walter Wolf. Uh, they ran as Wolf Williams for a while, and then uh, then those two split. And you'll man, you'll remember if you're old old enough as me, you'll remember Jody Schechter and later James Hunt in the Wolf car as uh, Frank Williams went on to do his own thing and started Williams Grand Prix. Um, and and he found success rather quickly. He began building his own car in 1978. He was winning races by 1979, and in 1980, he had won his first uh, world championship with Alan Jones behind the wheel. Um, and then from, from then on this, you know, the guy was just an amazing fixture, uh, in formula one for decades. Uh, he, uh, some of the drivers that came through Williams include, you know, some of the true icons of the sport, you know, we're talking about, you know, Nelson Piquet, Nigel Mansell, Alan Prost, Ayrton Senna, um, among others, you know, Alan Jones, Clay Regazzoni drove for them for a while, Ricardo Tracy, 
um, Terry Boots, and you know, a lot of great guys uh, drove Williams cars, Juan Montoya. Uh, and who can forget Pastor Maldonado? Um, <laughs> actually, was was the last guy to win in a Williams car. Hey, you know, the uh, for a time, Williams was right up there, uh, bouncing the title of supremacy back and forth with uh, McLaren and Ferrari. Uh, it was it was those three dominant teams for for a number of time, you know, with the occasional Benetton sneaking in here and there and uh, those sort of things. But uh, in later years, you know, the team's forces declined as uh, some of the bigger manufacturers uh, came in, uh, you know, with larger budgets. And um, but although Williams has maintained a team on the grid and it, just very recently, a year ago, um, they went ahead and sold off the team. And then Frank, of course, in his personal life has had a, a lot of struggles as well. He was in a, uh, a motor car accident in uh, 1987, I believe, uh, that left him paralyzed and, and wheelchair bound for the rest of his life. Uh, he lost his uh, wife to cancer in 2013, and uh, but yet, but yet he's um, you know stayed around and been a stalwart of the sport. So Frank Williams passed away at the age of 79 uh, earlier this week. Now, Richard, among us, you're the one who worked for Frank Williams and, and you know, the man, and you think very highly of him. So, so I'd like you to offer uh, some of your thoughts on, uh, I, I know you told me the other day that you felt absolutely gutted, which is understandable. Uh, so let's uh, yeah, let's talk to you a little bit about some of your experiences with Frank Williams. Yeah. I mean, the word sort of the, the phrase legend is used these days to describe somebody that can flip a half-filled bottle of water and make it land the right way up, aren't they? But, uh, you know, Frank Frank was a legend of motorsport. There's there's no no other word that can describe the man. And from a personal point of view, when I was was growing up in, in England in the, you know, started to get into Formula 1 in the early 90s, uh, you know, the, the likes of Nigel Mansell winning the championship in 92 was probably my first real recollection of the sport. And then, you know, the battles between Hill and Schumacher and Hill and Villeneuve and, um, you know, that, that sort of golden era of the, the, the Camel and the Rothman sponsored, uh, you know, Williams car was, was, you know, really got me into the sport. And, you know, I, I still will remember you know, my very first day working there in 2013, um, and admittedly the team weren't at the level that uh, they they had been, you know, 20 years before there. And, um, you know, that certainly wasn't for the lack of effort on Frank's part and, and everybody else that was involved in the team. It was just, you know, the nature of these big constructors and the big manufacturers coming in with double, triple the budgets of, of a small privateer team that, that Williams were. And until last year, until they were bought out, and I guess technically you could still consider them a true privateer team, but the, the guy was you know, pure and simple. He was a racer. And if you ever have a chance to watch the documentary they released a couple of years ago on him, I don't know whether it's on Amazon Prime or Netflix, but I know it is on one of the streaming services. It, it's, it's a fantastic watch. And, um, you know, he quotes the uh, the line from Top Gun, what was it, I have a need, a need for speed. And, and that was him, you know, through and through. He had a huge amount of respect for drivers and the guys that were, would push the, you know, to, to use a um an aviation analogy but you push the envelope of, of what a car could do and you know he embraced that and he embraced the 
um, you know, the people around him that, that shared that passion. And, uh, you know, it was infectious. And that's why so many people, you know, went to work every day for him and, and committed, you know, huge portions of their life um, to, to, to work for the man. And, you know, when, when I was there, unfortunately, his, his wife had passed um, and she was a real rock, um, you know, to him. And, and she, you know, she, she deserved, Ginny, uh, you know, she, she deserved as much credit for the success of the team as Frank did in many ways. Um, but he'd, he'd moved into the factory. He, he lived actually in the factory at the time for, you know, uh, for care reasons in many, many ways. And, you know, he was always there and he was always around. And if you're ever working on an evening or a weekend, you know, he'd be there with his carers and, be, you know, he'd be going around the factory and he'd be talking to people and, and interacting and really just wanted to be part of it on a daily basis. And, you know, considering the physical limitations that he had that it, it was it was very very inspiring i don't think there's any other way of, of looking at it and uh you know time time takes its toll and you know they did step away from the team last year but it was on the condition that the team maintained that ethos of a family-owned organization and i think they've done you know they've done reasonably well um you know under the uh, um current regime to sort of maintain that and i hope that does does maintain going forward because you know there is a special romance about the teams like Williams, and it's certainly a great pride that I have that I uh, I work there. And actually, on my office wall, I can look at it now. The the sort of photo from when I left there that everybody I worked with sort of signed. And uh, yeah, it's it's you know it's a really really sad sad time for the sport. And um, yeah, you know he's left his mark that, that the very few will 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 match. Yeah, well, well put, Richard. Very well put. So, yeah, Frank Williams definitely will be missed in the sport. Um, and and again, it's just you know one of those icons of, of when I was growing up. You know, and I watched Williams. You know, a whole lot longer than you did. And and you know all these uh, you know of of the the major teams. You know, we lost Colin Chapman so early on, and they managed to keep Lotus going for quite a while. And of course, McLaren has they lost Bruce McLaren way back in 1970 mm-hmm. and they've been able to continue that. Um, so uh, it's, you know, good on the, the owners of Williams for uh, keeping that name and keeping that legacy alive. And, and it's nice to see them actually improving on the track where they were, you know, just two seasons ago, they were perennially last and now they're actually, you know, they're getting some points here and there and uh, making a respectable uh, run of things. So, um, you know, good luck to the, Williams team in the future. And again, you know, all the friends and family of uh, Frank Williams have our sympathy. So let's, uh, let's get on to our interview segment. Cause like, again, like I say, I've got two very exciting guests and Dan, Dan Bly, let's start with you. So you um, are the proprietor of Dan Bly racing art. Uh, you, you do primarily custom die cast of Indy cars. Uh, but I have seen some of your, your paintings and sketches and drawings, which are equally brilliant. And for me, you know, as a kid, I love to draw race cars. I love to build models. Right. But I, I've never been able to accomplish anything on the, the level of perfection that, that I see in some of your work. So how did you, um, how did you first get into racing and modeling? Well, um, first of all, Richard, uh, my condolences to you in regards to Sir Frank Williams. Um, where I got started was I've always been a fan of IndyCar racing 
Um, I can remember like 1985, I think that was like my first real memory of it. Um, Danny Sullivan's Spin and Win. I remember that. And then uh, my dad took me to the Grand Prix of Denver in 1990. And I was just floored. Um, I couldn't believe all the colors and the sounds and even the smell of the tires and methanol and everything like that. And it just really left a, a huge impression on, on me. Um, so that's, that's where it all started. Um, as far as, you know, I, I started drawing like right around that time, um, in high school, <clears throat> I would draw nothing but Indy cars and, uh, that's just kind of where I wanted to go after, after high school, I ended up going to art school in Phoenix and, um, I ended up lasting about a year there. <laughs> And then I left because a guy got shot on my front lawn. So I didn't feel safe. <laughs> so uh, I came back here and, you know, I, I kept drawing and everything like that. And I needed to get a real job. So that's what I ended up doing. But <clears throat> I lay tile for a living. Um, the, I guess the drawing kind of went away for a little while. And then for, a bit I was doing models and you know things like that it was I guess as far as die casts go it's only been like the last 15 years that I've been doing them but uh it's by far my favorite um definitely pays better than drawing for sure but it's also cool you know seeing heroes uh, you know, like I, I've given stuff to Scott Dixon, Sebastian Bourdais, Greg Ray. I got one for Simona De Silvestro. Um, although I'll probably end up giving it to her next year at Indy. But um, yeah, it's it's just been a fun thing to do, and luckily I'm able to share my passion with other people that also share that passion. Fantastic. Yeah, there is a, a huge community of uh, diecast collectors out there and they, you know, there, there are a lot of things that they just want that are not produced. And there's, you know, guys like you and a few others um, that, that are just so skilled at, uh, you know, creating those, um, those diecasts that don't exist. Um, so when, when you make these, Dan, do you, uh, obviously it's probably easy to start from the purchase, the autograph car, which is, you know, totally white, but uh, at the same time, I've noticed that sometimes it's actually cheaper to uh, just find a one that was maybe not very widely sold or, you know, didn't sell very well and overproduced, uh, you know, ones that were popular. I mean, I saw a guy trying to unload cases and cases of 2015 Carlos <laughs> Munoz car selling for $30 a case, which is five bucks a car. <laughs> Which is uh, yeah, I got some of those. So, did you? Did you? Yeah. So, so do you? I mean, do you prefer to start with a blank slate, or does it just not bother you at all to start with a uh, a donor car with something else on it? No, it, it doesn't really matter. Um, for the most part, all of them are stripped. <clears throat> you know, you take it apart, you strip it, um, wash it off really good, and then you can start the series of painting and you know, like priming, color coat, things like that. And then once you're done with that, you get the decal kit decal it up and um you know there, there's different processes for for different ones but 
that's it doesn't really bother me if if it's an autograph car or not most of them i'd say like 80 percent of them get stripped with the lucky land slots you can get lucky just about anywhere this is your captain speaking uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky no no nothing like that it's just these cash prizes add up quick so i suggest you sit back keep your tray table upright and start getting lucky Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right. Very interesting. Yeah. So uh, we will get back to you. I want to talk to you a little bit more of that. But I want to bring uh, James into the conversation. Because, James, you have compiled this crazy database uh, where you have these IndyCar stats dating all the way back to the AAA era, and and you've got stats by number of races, uh, by type of racetrack, by U.S. state, by country, by, uh, you know, it's like like almost anything. Um, it seems like every time there's a race, you'll, uh, you'll publish a post and, and just come up with this crazy stuff. So how, how did you first become interested – and just the uh, the researching all the numbers of it. Well, uh, of course, it started with just loving racing. Period. You know, gotta have that love to spark it. Um, but I love history of all sorts, and if there's a particular part of history that gets that spark, I just can't stop learning, and I just gotta learn everything about it that I can. In. and um mix that with i've always been into math <laughs> and uh statistics and numbers and numerology and stuff like that so it just kind of came together you know um i probably have more as you were saying with american open wheel racing but one time i had just about as much on pre-war grand prix racing um i just love the really old stuff but unfortunately this was back when uh, I got my first computer and I wasn't savvy about backing up. <laughs> and uh, I unfortunately lost all that and I just kind of didn't get back <laughs> to that. So that was a bummer. But uh, yeah, I just I just want to try to know everything that I can about something I love. So so what's your, what's your research process? I, I know most of the you know, more current, you know, modern era stuff is, is pretty easy to find, but, but we're talking about, you know, like the early, you talk about the pre-war Grand Prix racing, we're talking about the early days of American open wheel racing. And, and there's some dispute here and there as to what really counts as an IndyCar race and what doesn't, because you have the, the AAA and I believe there was another competing organization. I think it was called the, was it the AD, ADA? Yeah. Um, so how do you, kind of factor those uh the, those stats into what you should include and and what you what you don't include i'm i'm a fact-based driven person at least i try to um 
and I, it doesn't really matter if you're trying to know the history of racing or want to learn the history of the bicycle or any wars or anything like that. I think it's very important to base your opinion on stuff that was written by the people at the time as it was happening. Um, because anything written after that has a little bit of bias or maybe they're just not them themselves don't know the whole story. Um, so I go out, I try to find old newspaper articles, um, which now with the internet has become a lot easier. <laughs> um, a lot of your big universities and museums and uh, publishers have digitized all their archives. So being able to go onto their websites, find old articles from the early eight, early 1900s and, you know, you come across things that were actually published by the AAA saying, you know, these are the races that's going to go towards the championship. Um, and that's, you know, what you pretty much have to go by. And um, as you were saying, it's a, it's a pretty messy history. Um, a few people would come along and they would try to do the right thing, trying to get organized with all the info, but they would kind of go off on a tangent and start including stuff that they personally thought should be included and didn't really go by what was published at the time for those years. That makes sense. Oh yeah, that does make sense. Cause they're like, again, like we said, there's competing organizations and uh, you know, there really wasn't a, an IndyCar series at the time, uh, you know, and it really wasn't established as an IndyCar, but you figure, I guess if this type car was racing in the, at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, it could be considered an IndyCar. And the, and again, the rules for what can race at the Indianapolis Speedway were pretty wide open at the time as well. Right. Yeah. And, um, and in, in the early years is actually a heavily driven, by the world, believe it or not. Um, what became the FIA started as the International Association of Recognized Automobile Clubs. Um, it was established in June of 1904. And, and what would happen is all of your major sanctioning bodies or clubs from all around the world would come together in one place and basically have a Congress or a meeting. And they would hash out all the categories of the cars, you know, this is class A, this is class B, this is, you know, so on and so forth. And for the first couple of years, um, it was the ACA that represented North America. And they kind of had a falling out with the AAA and eventually the AAA took their spot within that Congress. And so all these clubs from around the world would say, would try to get their regulations as close as possible between the classes. So anyone in Europe could come to America and pretty much race in all the big races without changing their car very much and vice versa. Um, so that's kind of how the top rung of American automobile racing came to be was trying to get all these European cars to come over as well to compete. So the AAA would say, okay, this is our, what would basically be class A in Europe. And these are the races that are going to go towards the championship. Um, All right. So then class A in Europe would be 
what they will call Grand Prix racing. Am I correct there? Uh, yeah, sort of. kind of. Um, Grand Prix racing started as kind of an overall for a race. Um, and, and it's kind of like endurance racing today. There'd be more than one class actually in that race. But you'd have the overall winner getting the grand prize, which was usually the class A, of course. Yeah, it's really very interesting because I was uh, reading one of your posts one day and I was surprised to find that um, the Pikes Peak Hill Climb was actually considered a points-paying IndyCar race under the AAA for a while. Yeah, it kind of went off and on there for a while. Um, I'm not really quite sure. I haven't nailed down what kept it from being a points-paying race intermittently but yeah um there are a few years there where it was included within the championship yeah it's all very interesting stuff even when you get into like the like the the usac cart era when you know cart was showing that you had the bulk of the races but at the same time usac still crowned a uh national champion and then for a while they crowned what they call the gold crown champion and the only race left on USAC was the Indianapolis 500. So, so, so at some point they decided that the gold crown champion was still the gold crown champion, but not the national champion because the national champion would be whoever won the car championship, which is pretty muddy in itself there, you know, exactly. Yeah. They even like threw a dirt track on, onto the USAC schedule in the early eighties, just to, you know, have enough races to call it a championship. Exactly. And, you know, it's, kind of goes back to what we were saying before you have in your opinion of what should be an IndyCar race. But when you look at the nuts and bolts of it, USAC was the sanction of the Indianapolis 500. And they said these other dirt races were going to go towards that national championship. So it's kind of hard to <laughs> deny that they weren't IndyCar races, you know? Right. Right. So, all right. Now, Dan, I want to get back to you for a little bit. Uh, so, well, we're talking about IndyCar diecast, right? So uh, we've had a couple of different pretty good manufacturers in the past, right? I, I used to like the old Action ones. I thought Action did a good good job. I thought Ertl did a good job, right? Um, I thought Racing Champions made toys, uh, but they for, for a while that was all you could get. But right now, the predominant manufacturer is Greenlight. Well, that's, that's the only person producing uh, current IndyCars. And uh, I guess there are... I do like the green lights, but there's things about the green lights that just piss me off, you know, like, uh, you know, like why, why is this steering wheel look like a road car steering wheel? Why couldn't you just mold a little piece of plastic in the, in, in the more of the rectangle shape of the, of the Indy car. Um, right. Actually, so like when you're doing these, um, your custom die cast, do you like change out parts of the, of the cars? I know some guys do some things with 3d printing to do new wings or, or, or the, you know, the steering wheels or suspension components, or even put on new wheels and tires. Do you, uh, do, do you do a lot of that when you're doing a full uh, conversion? Yeah. Um, for a lot of my stuff, it's all commissioned work. So it kind of depends on how much they want to spend. But um, if I'm going all out, yeah, I'll get new steering wheels. Um, might even try to do a driver figure if it has a kind of a basic helmet. Um, Mirrors, um, you know, from like 2003 to 
they were able, you know, on the real cars, they were able to kind of experiment with different things. So yeah, I'll definitely buy steering wheels, things like that. And uh, just to make it more real for sure, especially on the new ones, like they come with a round wheel and they haven't used round wheels in forever and a day. Um, but I'll also put on like little decals for like the tear offs on the windshields and things like that. It's all about these little, you know, pieces of detail that make it really uh, interesting and, you know, um, likable, I guess. It's, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, some of your things are really amazing. I've, I've looked at some of yours where you've done the, you know, the race version where it looks like mm-hmm. you put like the, you know, the, the splatter uh, on the sides of the car, make the car look nice and dirty as it, you know, as it, as it would have looked in victory lane. Uh, that yeah. I was looking at the, looking at the Elio Castro Nevis uh, one you did, uh, you know, from the Indy 500. It's just, it's just amazing. Uh, you know, the, yeah. amount of, the amount of detail you put in there. So, so now uh, thanks. You- <laughs> yeah. The, uh, the Connor daily, I made the race version with the big black mark on the, on the uh, nose and all that. That's one of my favorites for sure. Yeah, it's those it's those little things. You won't, you know, you won't find green light making that, but it's just it's just nice that there's you know guys out with that. And really, I mean, you know, you say it's, it depends on what somebody wants to spend, but I I look I look at what you're charging for a custom diecast, right? Which is anywhere from two hundred seventy five to four hundred dollars, from what I can gather. And I just and I just imagine the amount of time you put into that. Yeah, and, and I'm almost wondering if you're you're underselling yourself because when you think about that, this you know three hundred bucks, this kind of bargain for um for the product you're putting out. <laughs> well, thank you, I I appreciate that. No, it, I mean there's there's some people that that charge more. There's some people that charge less. I think this is just kind of like a middle of the road thing where, you know, it's it's definitely come up in a few years. Um, but right now I'm busy enough to where I want to be. Um, and you know, the, my reputation is, is pretty good. And I'm, I'm very flattered to be considered one of the best. There's, there's a lot of good artists out there and, uh, I'm happy to be among them. Yeah. Now Louise, uh, you have a question. Yeah. Yes, I do. When it comes to, of course you make all those custom diecast liberties and all, I remember hearing from somebody at the what what they call it at the Indianapolis thing during the month of May, the convention where they have all those member the memorabilia show. I think it was called. Where I think, if I remember, there's one other artist that was told that, that makes kind of like Ray Hall, Letterman, Lanigan ones exclusively just for teams. Do you also do stuff that is just for teams only and not for sale? Yeah, so that's Eric Hensley. He's really really good. Um, I don't make things for teams. Um, I just really don't have the time. I haven't really had that many requests either. Um, there's times where, you know, I was going to make like last year, I was going to make about eight for a specific team and things kind of fell through. And uh, that was kind of a bummer, but um, you know, it would have created a lot of work and with my real job, which is construction tile setting it, and family life, it, it's just not in the cards right now for me to do that. Um, in about three years, we're going to 
we might be able to move to Indy and uh, I might not be doing construction then. So we'll see what happens in the future. Um, there's a lot of things that can happen in three years. So we'll just see what happens. Most certainly and for sure, best of luck. I'm still contemplated about my side of things in my career, whether or not I'll head down to Indy or Charlotte or out of, out of nowhere, Southern California to figure something out because I'm from the state of Washington. And of course, being out west, there's so much I could do down there from a motorsports side of things. But yeah, most certainly the best of luck in that regard. I was just curious if you had any moments where you try to make stuff for team specific that are team specific yeah not not really yet so but that's okay it's okay you're busy enough now yeah but uh but i do i do wish you luck on hopefully that uh, one day you'll be able to walk away from the day job and just you know pursue your passion so uh yeah, I wish that you would be that. awesome. Yeah, <laughs> that that's the dream for everybody, right? So now, now, yeah. James, James, I want to bring you back into the conversation. Now, now, speaking of all the stats you've compiled, um, now, do you? It, I mean, are are you able to share that anywhere other than you know posting on social media? You know what I'm like? Do you have plans to uh, uh, you know maybe compile everything in a book or a, a database that other folks can access? I, I did it for my own personal uh, because, you know, I just if I see something happening, I was, I'd be like, oh, has this happened before type of situation? I'd be able to look it up pretty quickly. But uh, there's a couple of people who's asked me or trying to push me to do some books, especially around the different tracks and stuff. But um, I don't know. <laughs> uh I don't have too much confidence in myself as far as that's concerned. I think if I try to do a book, it'd just be a, a mess because I know how I go off on tangents when I'm just talking. I can't even imagine trying to get organized with chapters in a book or whatever. But um, I have thought about maybe starting up a website, possibly. Um, I know I have shared some of my spreadsheets with some friends through Google the Google Drive format, which I think is kind of cool. Um, but yeah, I, down the road, I might start a web page if I can get into that. I mean, I, I think what you have to offer is pretty amazing because um, there are, you know, a couple of other informational type things out there like uh, Champ Car Stats is still uh, there. Uh, Mark Dill uh, does the um, first super speedway. Um, and he's got a, a, a large archive collection of articles and whatnot. And, you know, I just really think that uh, as I read your stuff, some of your stuff is just more interesting uh, when you get into all these other little details that, that people don't think about. One of one of my other things that uh, that I really like that you do is the, you know, IndyCar, what do you call the IndyCar track graveyard? Right. Where you'll uh, give us some stats on a track that you know some of us may have never heard of, you know, and there were so many right. tracks in the United States, or you know, converted horse racing tracks. There were wood plank tracks. There were uh, street courses that are no more, uh, ovals that are no more, um, and uh, you know, you've compiled these stats for these you know tracks that are no longer existent. And I really think that you know, honestly, you know, when you say you're not organized. I would, I would say you, some of the stuff that, that I read that you put out there is some of the most organized stuff I've ever seen. So sound like you just might need the, uh, 
the services of a good um a ghostwriter to help you out like you know like a jade yeah. gersh jade gersh or somebody like that uh to help you put all the things in it because i think you'd be successful with it because i really enjoy reading your stuff i i really appreciate the kind words and you know it's when i came across the elite indycar group on facebook i finally found a group that i was like hey some of these people might be interested in this info so i just kind of started throwing it out there but um yeah <laughs> I, I <don't laughs> now, yeah now i wanted to ask you about um i don't know what i what i guess i will call like disputed stats um like i i recall you and i were having a discussion uh one time on on social media of uh how many pole positions Ryan Briscoe had, right? Because he had won a poll in Long Beach. And that was when Chevrolet decided to do the unprecedented move and yank all 11 Chevrolet cars, engines, and, and give every Chevrolet driver templates grid penalty. Uh, so we were trying to decide, even though he won the poll on Saturday, but he started from 11th, was that still a pole position? And I think you and I mutually agreed that he still had earned the pole and that, and that pole position belonged in the stats. But are there, are there other examples of that so-called uh, disputed uh, stats? I mean, when, when you get into, you know, sometimes pole positions are set by practice times or sometimes by point standings. Uh, how, how does all that figure figure in when you're, you're, you're calculating number of wins and number of poles and, and, and number of starts for folks? Uh, well, it's a big headache, <laughs> um, but it, it basically comes down to what the sanction, their final word is uh, basically what I go by. And in that situation with Ryan Briscoe, I had thought I had seen where IndyCar had not given him the des designation of being the pole winner, um, but I was able to find the PDF archive of I can't remember what it was. Uh, I think think it was the starting grid, and it had a note at the bottom from IndyCar saying what the situation was, and he was able to keep the pole designation, but he didn't start on the pole. Um, so in the end, it basically comes down to what the sanction, their final word is, but I just sometimes have to sniff it out a little bit harder than other situations. Yeah, I mean, yeah, there's a couple of them here and there where you just and and you know then there's what I like to call revisionist history. Like yeah, there are folks that will tell you Tony Stewart was the pole sitter for the 596, uh, but yeah. he didn't win the he didn't win the pole. He started from pole, but he didn't didn't win the pole. And that's uh, you know that that's another one that that just it's, it's odd that some folks just don't seem to remember that uh, you know Scott Brayton had lost yeah. his life the week before. And Scott Brayton was a rifle pole sitter. Right. Yeah. And it, it kind of goes back to what I was saying before. You have to go with fact. <laughs> um, it's great to have an opinion on stuff. Everyone has it. But you shouldn't let that get in the way of what really happened. And, of course, we see that a lot with uh, Paul Tracy versus the Elio in the Indy 500. Yeah. We, yeah. We all yeah, know yeah. whose name is on the trophy. <laughs> yes we do yeah and i'm i i often wonder to myself if paul tracy had won that race if he would not become the insufferable ass that he is but uh, the world will never know <laughs> <laughs> from what i heard he he was that way way before so 
this um, is this is quite true, as AJ Foy would say. This is quite true. Now, Louise, you have another question. Yeah, speaking of that, I mean, it's not often that you get sacked by Pansky more than once. So there's that too for Paul regarding Paul. But yeah, it reminds me when you bring it up, like who's the pole and all that. I know just recently in F1, Lewis Hamilton was still recognized as the pole sitter despite that grid spot penalty he got just recently. So there's always yeah, that. Yeah, that's, that's pretty clear in the rules, though, isn't it? That one, I think the way they you know, determine who is the actual pole sitter and then the penalties are assessed at a certain time. You know, it's whenever the penalty is assessed. If the penalty is assessed before qualifying, then he would lose the um, mm-hmm. pole. But if the penalty is assessed for like an engine change post-qualifying, then you still maintain your, you know, you still maintain it. In that case, the pole award. Yeah, for sure. Because it reminds me to some ways like who gets pole. Because I remember when I was... When Dixon won the Indy 500 poll, if I recall correctly, that was his first outright poll since 2017 or so at Indy as well. So it had been a long while, even though he started on pole once or twice because of owner points, because of qualifying being washed out, to my knowledge. So, yeah, I can. It's not, I'd imagine it's not an easy progress, kind of like debating stuff or realizing some of them are factual some of them it's just oh it's because of this ha- this so and so happened i know there's one person that acknowledges willpower is like x amount of pole x amount of poles plus one and that plus one being a surface paradise but that was just because it was an exhibition race in 08 it's not part of the championship trail at the time yeah then the other the other one that where the stats are disputed is vegas 2011 where they just canceled the race and then that's so any stat from that race where you're talking laps led pole, those sort of things are all just erased. Now, now James, you have thoughts on the, the, the Vegas 2011 and, and the, the, the stats from the portion of the race they ran. Uh, I, I personally agreed with wiping it away. If anything, I would have let, uh, I think it was Tony's Tony Kanan won the pole. If I'm not mistaken. I would have been okay with still giving him the poll because, you know, that was before the whole situ- tragic situation happened. But, I mean, no one really wanted to be there in the first place. And then when the tragedy happened, it was just like, okay, let's <laughs> let's get this behind us a little bit. Um, but if you don't mind me backtracking a little bit. No, go right ahead. Uh, the Indy 500, if we're going to talk about things that been debated i think there's one that hasn't been debated but should um this goes all the way back to the inaugural running 1911 most people will say that there's been 783 indy 500 drivers i would like to contend that there's 784 um mr burt adams was the unfortunate Odd man out because of the disagreement between Ray Haroon and Ralph Mulford of who actually won. But Mr. Burt Adams actually started in the car number 23, who was who all box scorers give as Mel Marquette being the driver. Um, but we know Mel Marquette finished the race, but it was Burt Adams who actually started in the car. And it almost every racing organization through time pretty much has 
said the driver who started it, you know, is the driver of the car, even if he gets relief sometime during the race or whatever. But unfortunately, with the whole Ray Haroon versus Ralph Mulford situation, once they finally declared Ray Haroon as the winner, they destroyed the records. And unfortunately, when they did that, it erased Burt Adams as an Indy 500 driver. Because yeah, uh, everyone stopped looking at it. That's one I've never heard. Uh, I mean, all, you know, there's always the debate about um, relief drivers who just drive a middle stint, you know, and of course, you know, Cyrus Paschke's name comes up a lot. He drove two, two relief stints in the first race, one for Ray and one for Joe Dawson. Uh, yeah. And those guys are generally not credited uh, at all until, until recently there's been a bit of a, a movement to kind of recognize those guys. But yeah, I had never heard of, uh, of the gentleman you just mentioned because uh, yeah, in most cases, if one guy starts and another guy finishes, they're both credited. And that, that, it, that explains your two, double faces on the board warner yeah and yeah and there's talking about relief drivers there's been 61 drivers who drove in relief but never actually got an official start in the indy 500 um Bert adams unfortunately doesn't fall into that category <laughs> he was just completely forgotten about basically poor guy all yeah. right so uh now, now, Dan, I want to I want to go back to you for a bit, and um, I, I'm kind of interested to, to to know what is your what's the most common request uh, that you have for uh, a custom diecast. I, I would imagine it's something as simple as getting Marlboro uh, conversions uh, because uh, most you know those were not produced after the tobacco settlement and, and whatnot, and then they you know they started making the, the Penske diecast just plain white. Um, is that is that your most common one, or is there there's something else? It kind of depends. Like whenever I post a picture somewhere, um, there's you know there's people you know like that, like a like a power team Kenny Brack. Um, that one's real popular. Then I posted Achiever uh, winner for '98, and that was pretty pretty popular too. Not like the Brack though. But there's always Penske's and stuff like that that I'm doing. Um, it just kind of depends. I get a lot of requests for a 91 mirrors, but man, <laughs> I think Replicars is going to come out with that. So I would just suggest to everybody just wait for it. Yeah, it's hard. Well, it's hard to find a donor car for a 91 mirrors, is it not? Oh, they don't make them. Yeah. yeah so, so, Steve, you're talking, you're, you're doing a lot of ground up stuff right there. Um, yeah, adding a lot of putty and things like that. And I have one. Well, I have two, but um well, of course yeah. you do, yeah. It's <laughs> a lot of work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I got like geez, I think I have like four hundred cars downstairs. You see, and my wife gets mad at me for my just hundred or so. <laughs> oh, <you want> another? <laughs> <laughs> oh no it's I, I tell you it's it's kind of funny because like you know sometimes people and 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 you'll understand this and most race fans that like diecast will understand this right you know and my wife could look at us so why do you keep why do you keep buying these things they just they just sit there in the wall in a case i said yes but when i'm sitting here i, I like to look at them you know what i mean it, it gives me it gives me joy just to to look at these you know model cars and you know yeah. I, like i say I, uh, I when i was a kid i used to love to build plastic models you know the the tamaya ones were my favorite 
And oh, yeah. because they were so, so detailed and they, they would come out so nice. Um, yep, great kits. Great kits. Yeah, yeah, my... Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, okay. I was going to say, my wife has kind of embraced the, the whole car thing as of late. So that's pretty cool. <laughs> my wife doesn't give me too much of a hard time, but she just, yeah, she's like every, you know, every Indy 500, I've been picking up a new die cast. So, but she, um, but, <laughs> nice. she, but, but she loves, she, you know, she won't watch a race with me on TV, but she'll, she'll go to the race with me all the time. She loves it. Mm, uh, you know, cool. she, she loves, uh, you know, all, all the pageantry of it. Uh, you know, carb day is her favorite, you know, usually, uh, the concert there will feature, uh, you know, a couple of bands that we really like. And, um, just to being around the crowd of people and being part of that. I mean, if you've never been to the Indy 500, you know, my God, it's just it's an experience that you want to just keep going to year after year after year. And then, you know, the first year I took her was 2005. And then she's been hooked ever since. Like I said, she won't watch a race on TV, but, but yeah, every, you know, she'll be like counting down the Indy 500. So nice, which is all good stuff. So now you, yeah. uh, now Dan, you're a, you're a family man, right? Have you been able to kind of share your, your passion with, uh, with your son at all? Oh yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, he's actually doing pretty well with it. He's made about like four cars now and, um, he, he listens to what I tell him to do and he asks questions and, um, he's willing to take the time to, to do things what I, you know, what I consider correct. And, um, he's willing to not rush through it, which is kind of unlike him and other things, but, but this, yeah, he's, he's able to, to, uh, do a good job. He even sold one about a month ago and, uh, he was pretty proud of that. So yeah, I'm proud of him. He's, he's a good kid. Yeah. Good stuff. Good stuff. Now this is the time in the show where I generally say, Richard, you've been quiet over there. <laughs> you've been quiet over there. So would you, uh, do you have any questions for Dan or for James? I think it's fascinating, uh, you know, li listening to to the two of you. I mean, I have a, um, I, I've got a few, uh, few model, uh, you know, sort of cars at home, but they're they're they're, they're typically shop bought ones. I, I I hate to say, and I, I did sort of say I'll only ever buy cars that win races that I've worked on, and uh, yeah, I wouldn't have many of those if that was the case. But um, <laughs> I have a few more than that. And, uh, no, I love, you know, I must admit, I think for, for a lot of engineers and a lot of technically minded people, the um, the precision and the details of these models is something that they find sort of addictive. And uh, yeah, I do have a, I do have a few and, uh, you know, so hopefully we'll get back into it in, in the near future and they'll be able to be able to collect, uh, collect a few more of them. But uh, yeah, I, I think it's fascinating, especially the, the specials and the one-offs and uh, you know i think as frank frank mentioned there you know some of the collectible ones now are obviously the ones that have been um you know the sort of the the, the pre-tobacco banning um from the even models you know i know some of the sort of formula one cars from the 80s and 90s are, are very collectible and run four five six hundred dollars for some of the originals you know like the williams rothmans and camel cars that we were mentioning earlier they're, for sure they're uh, they're fantastic to look at they they really are yep yeah even the the Tyrrell the six six wheeler that one that oh yes yeah yeah. Yep. yeah oh yeah, yeah. I, I even hot that. wheels made one i'm not sure where it went though 
Yeah, because the big, I think if I'm right, the, the big sort of European distributor is, is Minichamp. And uh, I remember when I was with Williams, they, <laughs> they dropped the ball on it one year and didn't send everything off in time to get a model produced. So they had to go to another manufacturer. And they still did a pretty good job of it. But uh, yeah, I've got one of those. I've got a Valtteri. I'm actually looking at it now. Which one's that? I've got a Valtteri Bottas from 20 oh, hang on let me have a look at it yeah about 2013 i think it was um yeah it, it's a non-branded spark model i think and uh, you know they still did a pretty good job but they're, they're not as detailed as the mini shop ones yeah mini champs is great for sure yeah they did yeah. some good stuff. i've got uh some uh early earlier formula ones because they, they for a while they were doing some historical ones I've got I've got a Francois Sievert one that's uh, that's really nice. A yeah. I, I mean I prefer a one eighteenth, but uh, you know, many chance makes some really nice one forty thirds. Mm-hmm. I have a Sergio Paris Racing Point. I might get the Red Bull one for this Christmas and a Rubens Barrichello <laughs> Rubens Barrichello Braun one out of out of pity because there's <laughs> pity, out of pity because there's this one guy that as a joke, they gave him a Barrichello brawn instead of a Jensen Button. He's a big button guy. It got so upset over it. It's like, oh, I feel so bad for rumors. I'll go get one on eBay. But yeah, for me, with indie cars, like primarily like the 143, I'm into the fully branded tobacco, custom or original. In fact, I have the Unser Junior 94 143rd when I was there at Indy in this past May. I think nice. I also probably for, for, for IndyCar and, and I guess IndyCar and, and probably NASCAR would be even more, you know, they, they run, you know, so many different sponsorship schemes and, and sort of branding throughout the season that I guess at times, you know, it could be difficult to keep up with some of them, really. Uh, uh, you, you know, you know, my, my, my understanding of that, and you know, our friend Seth is, big NASCAR diecast collector. They, whenever yeah, yeah. they're like, somebody wins a race, you know, let's, Oh, here, pre-order this uh, race. Use yeah. Yeah. But, they, but, they, but, they, the, but from what I understand, like a large percentage of these are never actually produced. If they don't get enough pre-orders, they just don't make it. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. that's the I mean, thing. We yeah. got a few when I was with, with children, so we've got, you know, I've got a few here in my office that were, were done in, you know, sort of the 2016 sort of time frame when they were pumping them out and they just, they were just basically giving them away because they couldn't, couldn't sell them. Uh, but yeah, you know, you could go through like each car money, each, you know, each team would have, you know, sometimes a dozen a season of different liveries and nobody's going to buy them. You know, they may buy the one or two favorite ones, but they're certainly not going to buy 15 you know, diecast models of these things for the, from one season. Yeah, no. unless it's somebody, you know, prominent. Like, I, I know Dale Jr. sold a lot of his diecast and whatnot. But, yeah, if you're talking, you know, you want to every livery that... Austin know, Dillon. Austin <laughs> Dillon ran, yeah. So, now, 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 James, I want to bring you back into the conversation because, as I'd mentioned earlier before, I I enjoy your um, IndyCar, IndyCar track graveyard thing. So when you compile these stats, you also compile the stats of how many races have been on each track. And I was just kind of curious, uh, you know, over the years, not, not of the current tracks, but, but any track, what are the, the tracks that have hosted the most IndyCar races other than obviously the Speedway? 
number two would be the Milwaukee Mile. Uh, well, Indianapolis has hosted 129 IndyCar races. Um, the Milwaukee Mile is at 113. Um, and I miss that track. Oh yeah, I think we all do. We Oops. all know that. I hope it. I hope it never goes away completely. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's, it's kind of scaring me a little bit. Um, yeah. But after that, let's got... be fortunate. Arca ran there just last year, so it's still a lot of running. But of course, yeah, the IndyCar would be very beneficial to have it back. Oh yeah, fingers um, crossed. Right. After that, you have uh, Phoenix International at sixty-four races. Uh, Michigan with 56, Trenton with 55, Mid-Ohio 38, Long Beach 37, Exhibition Place in Toronto with 35, which might be a little bit surprising, especially the last couple of years we haven't been able to go there with COVID. Um, Texas Motor Speedway at 34, and rounding out the top 10 is Langhorn at 33. Langhorn, yeah, that's an interesting place. <laughs> Buddy of mine, um... Mike Yoakum, him and I do these uh, Lost Tracks of IndyCar podcast every now and again. We did an episode about uh, Langhorn. So, and we, we did an episode on Trenton also. Trenton was one of the, the more interesting layouts out there when they, when oh, they yeah. put, put the kidney bean layout out there. So, you, so you're, you're literally you're talking an oval that's got a right turn in it, you right. know, in the middle of the backstretch. And uh, I, yeah, when I was a kid, I, I got to go to Trenton once and it was, 1978 and Mario had Mario actually won that race. He is, uh, was just coming off winning the formula one championship and jump back in for, uh, for an IndyCar ride. I, I just remember that the, 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 the weirdest memory <laughs> that, that, that I still hold on to was that they used a, um, Volkswagen Scirocco as the pace car, which, uh, <laughs> which oddly enough, I, you know, my first, several cars when i was young were volkswagens i'm a fan of volkswagen so i thought that was the coolest thing uh, that was almost cooler than mario winning the race i went to was a Scirocco for a pace car yeah but uh yes yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of you know sad as all these tracks kind of uh, you know you know fade away uh you know when and when you see places like um oh like you know like uh bridge hampton bridge hampton where they they preserved the bridge and a part of the part of the front stretch that they they keep there um, on the golf courses there now. So it's right. But other tracks, there's like no trace of them. Yeah, it, losing Syracuse really hurt. Um, that that was the last track that was part of the very first IndyCar season of 1905, and uh, yeah, I, yeah, it's just sad. <laughs> People don't realize the history that they're losing. I mean, that first 1905 season was the very first known multi-event points championship in motor racing. Um, so that pretty much set what we have now in all over the world, you know, a points-based system. And Syracuse was the very last one to be in existence, and they just got rid of it. So, yeah. How long ago did they get rid of that? Oh, was that? I think that was in was that 2014? I think it was. So yeah, so not not that awful long ago. Yeah, that's yeah, it's a shame. And then you know, the so. Indianapolis Fairgrounds just got I think graveled over. Um, the track is still there, but I think they put gravel over the top of the racing surface. 
Um, so there's still hope maybe that can go back to dirt and we won't lose it completely, but that'd be another one that it would really hurt to see that one go away. That's where uh, Carl Fisher ran at his very first race. So with that out that, who knows where we would be? Would he gotten that spark to create the Indianapolis Motor Speedway? What is, you know, what would happen? Yeah, the world will never know. Yeah, so, but it's, yeah, it's, uh, and, and, and to look at a place like Nazareth, to, to see it just sitting there rotting away, yeah. uh, you know, when, when Nazareth, Nazareth has a longer history than some people realize because it was, it, it was there in the 50s and they, they, for a while, they had the two ovals side by side. They had a half mile oval right next to the, uh, right next to the one mile oval, you know, both dirt tracks. Uh, but, but now it's, it's just, uh, you know, cause I used to live in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania when I worked in Allentown, but I would always <laughs> take the long way to work and drive through Nazareth just so I could drive by the track every day. Um, <laughs> you know, just cause I'm weird. Like, but that's when the track was still, still operating and I could go to an Indy car race there once a year. But uh, I mean, this you know property developer has bought this thing, and he just sat on that property for years, and it's just uh, you know it looks like an episode of History Channel's Life After People, where it's just uh, you know the weeds have overgrown the track and whatnot. So right. yeah, it's, that's where uh, Mario Andretti and Aldo got to see their first racing we, in North America. Exactly. Yep. I mean, if you don't want to preserve that, I mean, what do what do you want to save? So, all right. So we are. Right up, right up at the end of our hour. So my gosh, uh, it's been fascinating talking to you both. Um, so, uh, Dan, let me give you a few moments to plug your social media presence. All right, cool. Um, yeah, you guys can find me on Facebook. That's where I'm most active. Uh, search Dan Bly Racing Art. Last name is spelled B-L-E-Y. I'm also on Instagram, uh, Dan Bly Racing Art again. I even have a Twitter account, which is Dambly Racing Art, but I'm not active in it a whole lot. So Facebook is by far the best way to get a hold of me. All right. Now, James, uh, I know you uh, post all of your stuff after every race uh, on the uh, the group in Facebook called Elite IndyCar. Uh, do, you, do you publish your stats elsewhere? Nope, that's it. Nope, that's it. So... Go on Facebook, join uh, Elite IndyCar, which is a fantastic group, and you'll like it. I, I tell you, um, I'm one of the admins of the group, so I can uh, speak to that uh, great community of people who, who enjoy racing, racing history, and, uh, you know, without a lot of drama to speak. <laughs> you know, and some of these, oh, oh, Lord, some of these Facebook groups, I mean, uh, especially the NASCAR ones, you just, I just cringe at mm. stuff I read, so, but, uh, but I enjoy uh, all the people at Elite IndyCar, which is where I met both you, Dan, and James. Yep. So, um, yep. Great site. Great page. So, so well, well, with that being said, we are out of time. So I want to thank uh, thank you, Dan. I want to thank you, James. I want to thank you, Louise and Richard. I want to thank the Hoobazoo Radio Network. I want to thank Spreaker, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, iTunes, and YouTube. But most of all, I want to thank you folks who listen to us week in and week out. But until next week, good night. W-H-O-O-B-A-Z-O-O-S-U-S-U-S-U-S-U-S-U-S-U-S-U-S-U-S-U-S-U-S-U-S-U-S-U-S-U-S-U-S-U-S-U-S-U-S-U-S-U-S
Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner.